This podcast is sponsored by Engineered Tax Services, a subsidiary of Engineered Advisory, whose goal is to support CPAs and their clients to achieve the highest and best use of time and resources. ETS offers specialty tax services and incentives, which help expand your capabilities and ensure that your clients are paying only what is required in taxes and nothing more. To learn more about Engineered Tax Services, go to engineeredtaxservices.com and mention the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise podcast to receive project discounts and a free CPA partnership ebook. Hi, everyone. This is Heidi Henderson, and you are listening to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise podcast for accountants. I am really passionate about people and the industry. And I truly believe that the accounting industry can do better for both our clients and its professionals. So I'm going to share insights from people who have found professional success and who have managed to balance that with their physical, mental, and personal health. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope you get inspired. Accountants can earn free CPE from listening to this episode. Just visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. And now, on to the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. We have an awesome guest today. I'm very excited. We're going to be talking with Nick Burgess, who is a principal with the Burgess Group. He's been there since 2005. And one thing I love about the company is that it is a family-run company, so hopefully he'll share a few more details about how they've started and how they they function as a family unit, because I'm sure that's got interesting uh, aspects of it uh, in and of itself. And since I also work with my sister, I, I understand some of those complexities that we deal with uh, working with families. So hopefully we get to hear about that with Nick. Um, the Burgess Group focuses on, well, well Nick specifically focuses on uh, regional and national strategic alliances, but really they are they are providing really sophisticated insurance solutions. And what they do is really unique. You know, when we talk about insurance, this is not, you know, what I would say is insurance sales or life insurance from a, a, a typical standpoint. And we'll be excited to have Nick explain more and really talk about the differences and what his team is doing, what they specialize in. But I met Nick because he's part of one of our associations that collaborates with us as a partner in our consulting side with ultra high net worth or high net worth individuals with strategies that can help really increase their net worth and really look at the long-term structuring of their estate planning. And it's a really interesting metric and process they've put in place to help build this for some of these clients and their families. And he works with a lot of CPAs and accounting firms as well as a great resource I, I have a lot of trust and faith that I've placed in Nick and his team, and I think how long they've been in business and the clients that they have really shows their level of professionalism and their attention to detail, which I really value in this space. Um, so, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Heidi. <laughs> Perfect. So, will you start by give us a little bit of a backstory of the Burgess Group? How did the Burgess Group start? And then how did you sort of fall into line in this industry? Yeah. Um, where do I begin on that? Um, <laughs> well, you, uh, you, you said it, you know, it, it, it is a family business and it, it really started with uh, my father, you know, uh, 
he he really saw a disconnect between the you know the banking world and the insurance world and and uh, and he decided if you could bridge the gap between those two industries you could make a pretty interesting transaction you know he started in the M&A space and then went to the estate planning realm, realm and that's really where he saw that disconnect and you know fast forward to today is really what the Burgess Group is all about uh, and our mission statement being you know prosperity with purpose but you said it really well it's we're using life insurance as the vehicle and you know i'll be the first to admit that you know as soon as someone hears life insurance most eyes glaze over um because it's life insurance <laughs> but yeah. it really is right it really is one of the vehicles that uh we use because of the tax benefits that it that it creates and we the unique part is is we're funding it with banks money at very low or attractive interest rate costs uh, of that money and by doing it with the bank's money, we can now, it's a much more efficient way to procure um, an asset class uh, or a new asset class through the life insurance dollars that comes in if held properly, estate and income tax-free. Um, so from there, uh, you know, my, that's, uh, my dad was really part, part of uh, some of the first beta tests with some of the banks to get this done. And... Uh, you know, then he met my mom and they got married and had kids and we kind of just grew up in it. Um, I remember growing up, uh, you know, I really didn't want anything to do with the business. I, I, I mean, I loved going to his office and pretending I was this businessman. I remember those images, but when I started to learn what it was, as far as being life insurance, I, I remember feeling like, yeah, I don't want any part of this, but I, I didn't really have uh, an educated reason as to why I just, I just knew I didn't want to be in the insurance space. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from there, uh, I dabbled in a lot of different areas. I think we're all very entrepreneurial at heart. Um, I know that's, I mean, that's how my father really started it off of, a seeing a disconnect and, uh, really building something that from the ground up, you know, at the end of the day, it's leverage. There's nothing new about leverage, but at the time, this strategy was very new. Um, and it's, I mean, you can talk to a lot, a lot of individuals from accountants to attorneys, and we work with some of the best in class on both sides where they're not familiar with this at all. Uh, mm -hmm. and the term for it is, is called, you know, premium finance. It's not a word that I even use because it, it doesn't, it, it paints, uh, one picture, it paints one spoke on the wheel, if you will, where we're, you know, you're using a bank's money to fund life insurance. You, that's, that is one spoke on the wheel and you can find any bank, uh, any insurance carrier out there that's willing to do this. But when we get into the, the, you know, a transaction that's actually going to last or a healthy, good transaction, right? Uh, there's a big difference and that's, one of the biggest pieces for us is helping individuals, accountants, attorneys, clients identify how we differentiate from other groups out there. Because again, like I said, there's nothing new about leverage. So, so when when was the Burgess Group founded? Uh, let's see. We are in our thirty first year now. Um, my father's been in the industry about forty five, um, but uh, he started uh, the Burgess Group about thirty thirty one years ago. Wow, that's awesome. That's very cool. And and it's not just you in the family business. Your siblings are involved as well, right? 
Correct. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm the oldest of three of three brothers. I want to say I jumped in first, but, um, uh, <laughs> my stepsister who is also, uh, part of the family business as well. She was, she kind of led the way on that side. She's <laughs> older than I, and, uh, she started, uh, I dabbled in my other areas, uh, and realized, well, I, you know, I might as well see what this is all about so I can make an educated decision as to why I don't want to do it. And when I did that, I realized it fits right in line with the entre entrepreneurial spirit. And it was actually very, very interesting. And so I <laughs> dug my heels in and, and ended up loving it. And, and each brother kind of went through their own, uh, uh, experience in life and, and naturally came in. I think that's why we've been successful because it's, it's really something we love and we naturally came into it. Um, so, you know, that's really cool. Well, I love that it's been 31 years. I love that, you know, each of you guys had your own individual paths. And, you know, I always think it's interesting with siblings, with my siblings, as well as with my kids who are all in their 20s, mm -hmm. to see the differences and how vastly different their personalities are. Um, so mm -hmm. for everyone to have sort of arrived at the same location, so to speak, in terms of what they're doing professionally is 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 profound. That's very cool. But aside right. from that, uh, back to a comment you made is that with a lot of your clients, a lot of the accountants, one of the biggest things is really trying to identify differentiators. And I mean, yeah. I think that's a big deal with all of us with what I do as well is sometimes you've got things that are commoditized and they become, you know, just simply a transactional service that you can find dime a dozen in certain places. So, so what is it that makes you, you know, for our listeners, I do want to dive in a little bit deeper into exactly what you're doing. But yeah, before yeah. we do that, you know, what specifically are some of those key differentiators that, that you've identified? Yeah, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. The commodity piece is usually where we start. As, and some of the, the um, pitfalls in the premium finance space is that you've got people selling this as a commodity. You've got people selling this as it's free insurance and that there, or that there is no risk. And... That sounds very attractive, but it's, it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's mm -hmm. premium finance. What we do should never be sold as a commodity because it's not for everybody. If everyone could do it, absolutely they would. Um, uh, but it's just not for that. I'll get into what some of those parameters are. Um, and then any transaction that anyone does has risk. So for it to be sold as, uh, that there is no risk. I mean, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone, but anytime I hear something that has no risk, I walk away because, uh, that's usually too good to be true. And, uh, uh, these transactions, it's leverage. It has risk, but for us and where we differentiate is we're able to speak. We're not going to run from what the risks are. I think the more and the more clients understand, and not just the clients, but their attorneys, their CPAs understand all the moving pieces and what exactly we can identify what those risks are, the easier the transaction becomes. And mm -hmm. we're really looking for those clients, not only that qualify, but have a need, but that aren't afraid of understanding the risks, because then we can compare those risks to the alternatives. And there's not that many alternatives when you're trying to solve an estate tax uh, or add additional income or uh, looking on a corporate planning setting for a, a key man buy sell golden handcuffs type strategy. And then on the philanthropic side as well, it's it's one area that we we do a lot in. But 
Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to compare, A, talk about the risks, what the moving pieces are, and then compare that to, to the alternative is, is one area that we really focus on that helps us differentiate. Okay. Well, yeah, and I want to dive into, you You just uh, briefly brushed over the topic of the philanthropic side, but early yeah. on you said specifically you call it prosperity with purpose. And I think that's a, a huge component to what you're doing. To, to kind of recap, you know, we talk about pre- premium finance and really we're looking at these incredible, they're, they're not called whole life policies, right? What do you, what do you call them? Right. It's, we're, well, we're using permanent permanent life insurance yeah. because it has, okay. it needs to have their cash value component because yes. at the Got end it. of the day, right, the cash yeah, yeah. value. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't remember the, the term. So yeah, we've got the, right. the permanent life insurance, which then you mm-hmm. are able to utilize financing a small amount of collateral to essentially then create financing that pays the premiums because the premiums are p- pretty significant usually for a lot of these large policies, right? But those payments gain in value because they have a cash value associated with them that's just growing. So it's this whole, it's this whole plan that, that you were saying has kind of this estate piece, but then moves into sort of this philanthropic side. Can you, you know, for, for those of us, you know, listeners, this is a pretty complex topic. I've gone through this with you, I think, three times now, and I'm still <laughs> trying to wrap my head <laughs> right. around all the ins yeah. and outs of sort of over this overall structure. But mm-hmm. g- give us kind of the layman's terms. You know, yeah. like we don't understand anything about how this works. But who, wh- why would someone want to do this, and what's the end goal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So the let's let's use a real life example. I think that mm-hmm. usually usually helps and I'll just simplify it. We, we, we had a, a, an account refer a client to us that is 56 year old is 56 years old. Now, uh, he'd actually, um, been paying, he was used to paying for insurance his whole life. He's been paying for term insurance, which does not have a cash value component. That's usually the cheapest form of insurance. Right. And it does have a place. I'm not knocking term, but He's been paying for term. He understands life insurance. Um, uh, and he's 56 now. And, and after working with his attorney and his accountant, they, they recognized he had about a $15 million estate tax problem that he needed to solve uh, as his kids were involved in the business uh, and they were real estate heavy. And, and he recognized he didn't want to put his kids in an in estate in tax issue or leave them with that. So, okay. so he, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a really quick question. Yeah. And I apologize for interrupting, but so you've got this 56 year old with a $15 million estate tax problem. So they've identified mm-hmm. that if he was to pass away right now, that based on his estate, the estate would incur $15 million in tax. Now, you know, I've, I've got some clients to, to give us a real world example and tell me if this kind of correlates. I have a client in California who, who, um, there are three siblings. They mm-hmm. are working in the family business. The parents were immigrants to the U.S. and ended up buying real estate. And they own these incredible properties around the San Francisco area that they manage and they operate. And mm-hmm. they are wholly owned by the parents that are now in their 80s. And they're realizing right. that when their parents pass away, they're going to incur a step-up in basis on the real estate and on all of the assets and incur a massive tax liability that the only way for them to pay the tax will be for them to sell 
their real estate, which their real estate is up there, they're operating um, memory care facilities. So they actually oh, run wow. the business. And each right. of the three kids has one facility they run and manage. So if they have to sell one of those businesses and buildings to pay the tax, they essentially now have cut the ability to have any future revenue because right. they have to sell that just to pay the taxes incurred on the death of their parents. And so this wasn't right. an issue they were trying to solve. So so I think that's kind of a world, real world scenario where, you know, if we're looking at someone with a large estate tax problem that we're pro prospectively identifying, that this is what you're looking at with this client, right? Yep, exactly. And, okay. and you know, if, if they don't, to your, to your point on your clients, if they don't find a solution for that, the kids, to your point, is, are going to have to pay that huge estate tax and the only assets are they're going to have to, you know, fire sell, mm -hmm. to your point, the real estate in and, and pay that, that estate tax to the government within, you know, nine months. And, uh, you know, having to have a fire sell on real estate and selling those, you know, what it's worth for pennies on the dollar is not something anyone would want to do. And that's where this can come into play and where the, you know, now we can like I mentioned, procure the insurance, the insurance dollars. This is, you know, I love a client that hates insurance and that's fine. That's, that's, you can hate insurance, but I can tell you why not use your most hated asset to pay, to pay off, you know, to pay the government. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, if this individual, if we're going back to my client that needs to yeah. solve, you know, $15 million, uh, he's not a fan of insurance. He has paid for it his whole life. And he, he recognizes that, you know, um, out of his options to solve the $15 million estate tax problem is he could do one of three things. He could do nothing, which would be right. Self-insuring. He could go back to the way he's been doing it, which is paying for premiums, or he could finance it. And financing is where we come in. And that's a relatively new um, approach for him. Uh, uh, and so we wanted to walk him through what each one of those options look like, right? Because that, that way he can make the most educated decision based off of the options that are out there. And then there's not a fourth option that I'm aware of. Uh, uh, so, you know, if any of your listeners come up with one, please let me know because, you know, <laughs> that's, about all, that's about all I know. And yeah. so by taking that strategy, we, we walked him through, uh, you know, he recognized that doing nothing, self-insuring was not, not the option he was going to go down. So he's left with paying for per paying for insurance or financing. So his options with paying for insurance were term insurance or permanent insurance. And he recognized since he's had term that buying term for an estate tax really isn't the best strategy. Yes, it's going to be the cheapest strategy, but what does that really get him? Because what, when we did the analysis, you know, he recognized his 56 now the longest term he could find in a, in a financially sound carrier was about a 20 year term. And after the 20 years, you know, yeah, his outlay was about a million dollars to maintain the $15 million of insurance for the next 20 years, but that only got him to age 76 mm -hmm. and his mortality is not 76. It's at, at, at that point, it's, it's more, he has longevity at least 85. And if he has to re-up that term insurance from 76 to 85 or 86, those premiums are going to readjust to his new age and be well over four, five, six hundred thousand. So he recognizes that's like renting, not the best option. So we went into the permanent example and permanent could be whole life, 
It could be universal life. It could be index universal life. It could be variable. I don't personally think variable is the best option because it brings on all the market risk. If the market falls, uh, so does your, so does the, the product. It, it doesn't have a floor. So we walked in through that. Now that's a better option because it is building that cash value piece. So at the end of the day, you know, we measured what does it look like in 10 years? He'll, he'll have put about 125,000 in a year. And after 10 years, he'll have put in 1.2 million. Well, his cash value was like 850,000. So it, it, and it plus his death benefits at 15. So his true cost really isn't the 1.2. It's the difference between what he's built up in cash value and what his outlay was. But the beauty of that is, is that debt benefit's actually going to be there when he needs it versus where term will only get him to a certain age. Well, we can take it a step further because now, you know, we're, we're measuring opportunity cost. And the third step is, okay, let's take that same permanent product that we just showed you and let's have the bank take over the premiums, right? So now his outlay, which we could measure opportunity cost from term to permanent, his outlay is now zeroed out. Again, like I just said, I'm not saying that it's free, but we can keep his balance sheet intact. His participation, since he's not going to be paying an after-tax premium dollar cost, will be posting or leveraging an asset as collateral for a number of years. <laughs> uh, and in this example, we end up procuring the exact same solution that the permanent example was showing him, except for we eliminated his out-of-pocket cost um, which, uh, uh, is now tapped into and solved the same assets that he needed for the 15 million to cover the estate tax. But again, we've kept his balance sheet intact. And when he's able, we're able to walk him through each one of those comparisons and show him where the risk is in each one of those comparisons. It ends up being, it ended up being a no brainer for him. Uh, and, and, you know, this is coming from, uh, uh, you know, like I said, this referral came from his attorney and his accountant. And, and they walked through every step with us so that they could, you know, help the client, you know, make an educated decision as well. So it, 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 it's just a much more efficient way to solve what high net worth clients are already doing. Yeah. And, and okay. So, so he's then, um, collateralizing, collateralizing that that's going to have, that's going to, so he'll have, he'll have some collateral that he's posting. But he's financing the premium, so he's not coming out of pocket on it. What is the end result? So for this gentleman, yeah. you were able to structure this. What is the end result? Let's just say, you know, if you project that his lifespan is to 86, which he's 56, yeah. so we're looking 30 years down the road. What, what is the end result then in comparison to we now know what would have happened in his term policy scenario? Uh, but in what you had him set up with, what do we end up with? Yeah, well, we fund these because it's permanent and because we're using the bank's money. We're going to be funding these at an entirely different level than one would be able to fund it or uh, as as with their own money, right? So we're going to be funding these policies so efficiently that they are going to, you know, typically grow through age. We're solving through an age one twenty. So this we can mm -hmm. solidify that this insurance is going to be here. We're not funding it at the as they call it, target levels, or uh, again, what would uh, what a normal individual would pay out of pocket? We are supercharging these premiums and funding them at the max non-MEC level. If they if that strategy works, we can even overfund these as they call a MEC, 
um, which that gets into the charitable piece and all we'll, we'll, we can get into those acronyms in a moment, but um, <laughs> the end result is uh, we're going to fund the, the, the permanent life insurance using the bank's money. The cash value of the policy is what ends up collateralizing or securing 90 plus percent of the loan. So for an example, if the, if the premium going in is 10 uh, or 5 million, right? If the premium going in from the bank is 5 million, you would typically think, okay, the client then has got a post collateral of 5 million to, to, to utilize as collateral for their skin in the game. Well, the beauty of this is that these policies have cash value. So if the premium is five, the cash value, because of how we're funding this and we're using, we're trying to get the policy to reflect as much cash value up front. The cash value of the policy is actually 4.5. So the true collateral for the client is the difference between the loan, which is five, and the cash value, which is 4.5, which is a sliver, which is 500,000. So this client knows they're going to collateralize an asset, uh, which is going to be about 500,000. Now, what can they use as collateral? They could use cash, stocks, bonds, but like I said, these clients are heavy in real estate. So we, we, uh, we have uh, uh, over 14 lenders we work with, and one of the lenders we work with can actually utilize real estate as collateral. Now, mm. so that we can go back to these clients saying, the actual asset you can leverage is the asset that you have uh, plenty of, which is real estate. And they, can get, they ended up getting just a standby letter of credit off of a Zillow value, off of the millions of dollars they had sitting there in real estate. And one of our banks simply used that as the outside gap collateral to cover that sliver shortfall after the policy is really what secures 90% of the loan. Wow. So at the end of the day, it would solve that uh, estate tax. When they pass, they know the gross death benefit is going to pay off the bank. Mm -hmm. Upon death, the bank will get all their money back. The collateral is released back to the clients. And the beneficiaries, that individual's children that are in the, in the company, will at that point receive a check. Actually, it ends up growing for more than 15. It, it, you know, at the end of the day, based off of very conservative assumptions, you know, it grows to about 20, 22 million. And that'll go to their kids, uh, a $22 million check that's 100% income and estate tax-free. Again, it's going to be held outside of their, their estate and held within the trust, which is why it's uh, not including their estate when they when they pass, but we solved that need for him, and he he leveraged an asset that's just sitting there. Wow, yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's pretty tremendous. Um, and to your point, you know, it's it's life changing. Like in the example I was saying of the family that I work with, uh, I mean mm -hmm. that's a real problem. And and since we look at this and think, gosh, you know, this is this is for people that you know have a i think a net worth of 10 million or more to where this is really a good structure for someone in that category and we look at it and think well gosh you know these people are doing so well and they have a lot of money um but you know in high tax states like california <laughs> where yeah. these guys are paying very 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 high tax rates it it can make or break the difference between the the um children's ability to continue to function and thrive when it's looking at what they would have to pay out um, in a in a death situation, so the tool is pretty tremendous. So let's mm -hmm. let's add in then the secondary aspect of this. You know, we, we you know I think that case study is amazing with this fifty six year old. But where does the prosperity side come in? Where does the philanthropic side roll into all of yeah. this? Yeah, 
that's, and that's the part that really, uh, you know, gets me, get, gets me up in the morning for what we're doing, you know, um, because that really helps us make some game changing gifts that, you know, um, are happening daily with the work we're doing, but that comes into play when we are overfunding these policies as what we would call a, a financed mech, uh, and a mech stands for a modified endowment contract for all the mm. listeners that want to look up uh, insurance <laughs> acronyms. But yeah. that's basically a just a, a a seven pay test rule that was implemented on insurance. That if you over if you if you break if you overpay premium over the seven pay test rule, it'll turn these insurance contracts into what is called a mod a modified endowment contract. And if you fund it that way uh, or turn a contract into that, basically it's changing some of the taxation within insurance because what happens is, is you basically, the, the IRS stepped in and said, people are abusing the way insurance was made, where they're funding it in such a way that it's, it's starting to uh, act like an investment and that's not what insurance was meant for. So hmm. when you turn a policy into a modified endowment contract, uh, you typically lose your tax-free withdrawal ability, hmm. which is a huge component of insurance. And uh, if you uh, touch any of the cash value, once it's exceeded the, the basis, any of that growth will typically be now taxed as ordinary income, right? Um, now, the death benefit is always tax-free, but it's, it's, it's for individuals that turn their policies into a modified endowment contract where that growth, when they're pulling that out, if they ever want to pull that out, uh, again, it's they're going to have to pay taxation on that uh, on the growth. Uh, now, when we add in the loan component, you're basically changing those rules um, uh, that make it even more uh, inefficient, if you will, for an individual, as of that it creates a phantom tax issue that basically clients are going to have to have to pay a dollar taxes on a dollar that they never used. You know, it's one thing to pay taxes mm. on a dollar you used. It's another to pay taxes on a dollar you never used. Where in the first example, I said, if you touch that cash value, any of the growth is going to be taxed. If you don't touch it, well, then you don't have any taxation. On a financed mech where you're using the bank loan to pay the premiums, basically you're going to be issued a 1099 whether you touch the cash value or not. So oh. we are creating it. It creates that phantom tax issue for clients, and they're not even. And even if they've decided not to use or touch any of the cash that, that is a problem for any client. Nobody wants to pay taxes on a dollar they didn't use. So right. the prosperity with purpose comes in where we can basically we're not changing the the MAC rules. Uh, you know, we're 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 not messing with any of that. It is what it is. But we're able to basically absorb some of the phantom tax issues by meeting and satisfying the IRS rulings, which ultimately leads to philanthropy. Uh, and, and for our high net worth clients, we're seeing more and more, yes, they're wanting to, they, they don't want to leave their kids in a, in a state tax issue or, or whatnot, but they also don't want to leave them more than what they need. And we're seeing, which is something I really like hearing um, uh, as, you know, they're not wanting to ruin them. And so they're, you know, the, these overfunding uh, transactions and turning them into mechs really, at the end of the day, allows us to solve what the clients need and give a large chunk to charity that these clients are already super passionate about. So it allows us to kill two birds with one stone 
and yeah. the amount that, that goes to charity are, are, are game-changing gifts. Um, and so that, that piece is you know, just something that really gets me excited in what we do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me ask you this. What's the difference between just simply paying out charitable gifts versus utilizing a vehicle like this to, to filter it? And I, I asked that because coincidentally this morning I saw some news article pop up in my thread that was something to the effect that there's a billionaire family who has paid out a million dollars in charity every single week of this year. And they're on 52 <laughs> payments um, of a million dollars a week to different charities. And, um, you know, I thought that was kind of fascinating article discussing what they're doing and their their ultimate goal of making a difference and providing funding for, for philanthropic work. But is there a benefit to utilizing one of these vehicles as a source to do that uh, versus what they're doing? Yep. Or is there no correlation between the two? No, absolutely a benefit. It's just a, you know, and it, and, and we, you know, we work with some of the largest universities, uh, clinics, foundations around the country in helping build endowments or amplifying gifts, uh, donors gifts, um, because that's exactly what it does. It's just a, it's not going to change what donors are already giving. Um, it'll only enhance it, ends up putting five, 10, 20 X on the back end of what they're already currently giving. And especially for, you know, we've worked with several billionaires where when the light goes off, they're recognizing, you know, they're already going to be giving, you know, what they want away. They've already typically earmarked that, but they're going, wow, based off my net worth, I have another asset class that's just sitting there and it's untapped. And that's what they're worth in the insurance space. Now, you know, a billionaire can't get enough insurance based off of what they're worth because you, anyone taps out, taps out at about, you know, 300 million of insurance. But, you know, uh, for someone that has that net worth, when they recognize, wow, I've got 300 million that I could tap into and I could tap into it using the bank's money and I can collateralize any one of the number of assets that they have, typically what, you know, what a billionaire uh, can utilize as collateral um, is, you know, they no longer have an issue of, you know, what, the meaning of collateral. It's, it's different for <laughs> when they get at that level. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're recognizing, okay, so I can keep doing what I'm doing. I could also uh, carve out a fraction of my bond portfolio or my real estate portfolio to leverage as collateral for a number of years, tap into all three two, $300 million of insurance that I'm worth, that the insurance space says I'm worth, and I can give and pledge all of that to XYZ charity or, uh, you know, one, something that they are passionate about. And again, it's going to come in and grow. It's going to grow and come in, I should say, tax-free at the end of the day. It's just, you know, a way to supercharge, again, what they were already doing. And if they don't tap into the insurance dollars, they're going to leave it on the table at the end of the day because, you know, we all die. And uh, yeah. this is, like I said, just a much more efficient way to tap into that. Interesting. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept. I mean, it's like we were, I was saying earlier, it gets a little complex and it's technical. Yes. Um, and then it, sometimes it takes a few times to go around to really understand how it all ties. But really is yeah. interesting and applicable, I think, for, for quite a few people. So tying this mm -hmm. back over then to 
you know, I think my audience will likely be mostly accountants and CPAs, and we work with a lot of CPAs that are consulting and really striving to encourage the space to become more advisory and to think more outside the box in terms of solutions for their clients and not just compliance. It's not just about filing a tax return, but our clients are wanting to know that we are thinking and looking out for their best interests in terms of some opportunities that exist to help them strategize. Uh, exactly like you know the, the the case I was using earlier with the California family and in some of these inst- um, instances. So with that said, I'm assuming that you have a number of of accounting firms or CPA firms who utilize your services or have come to understand this and are able to consult with their clients on this or sort of bring you in. How have you seen yes. that go in this space? I mean, I, I'm curious as to how receptive you've found some of the accountants to be and how that's worked yeah. for them. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you, I'm sure <laughs> with this discussion, you know, at the end of the day, no one's going to do what they don't understand. And I'm sure, yeah. you know, with these first discussions, it it probably is, like you said, it's a lot. There are a lot of moving pieces. It is complex, but we we spend the time and these are not short-term transactions. This is not something that we do. You know, we, we don't do a hundred of these a year. It, you know, we, we, and that's something that I really like, it, you know, it, with the clients we take on, you know, it's a, it's a very select few and, and we're really making sure they qualify and that they have a need. But with our, the accountants we're working with, you know, we don't expect when we're talking about this, them to have to now regurgitate any of this back to their clients because uh, one mistranslation and obviously it's, it's going nowhere. But what we, do, what we do know is that the, all the accountants or the attorneys we work with, uh, but specifically on the accounting side, is we do know that their clients, uh, especially the high net worth, most are going to have uh, in that high net worth, high net worth status, you're going to have an estate tax issue. Uh, we do, we know that a lot of the accounts we work with, uh, have a lot of corporations, businesses they work with where they're working on key man, buy, sell, gold handcuff type strategies. Yeah. These are all things that they're very, very much aware of that they're talking to their clients all the time about where we come in and we stay in our lane. We're very niche. We're very focused at what we do. We don't dabble in other areas. We can now just come in and show them. Here's a much more efficient way to solve the needs that you're dealing with your clients on a day-to-day basis. Because the reality, too, with accountants, and I find it uh, funny, um, is that, you know, and it's why I, I specifically really like working with accountants, is they are the most trusted advisor. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. Clients look at their accountants as though they can fix any anything and everything, <laughs> um, which is a problem. Because, you know, the reality, I think, and I wish it was, uh, you know, the relationships, relationships I'm looking for and the ones that really flourish are the reality is, is the financial advisor, the attorneys, the accountants, we all have the same client and we all specialize in different areas. And I wish there was a lot more collaboration for all three of us to work together more. I understand there's a lot of there's a lot of bad actors in this space, especially in the insurance space. And so people have been burnt. There's been alternative motives. And anytime there's money flying around, yeah, you, you have to be, you know, trust has to be there and professionalism has to be there. And you have to be able to, uh, you know, truly come from what's best for the, for the client at that standpoint. 
But that's even more so a reason why I wish uh, and want to work with individuals that have that open collaboration uh, on our levels, on the financial advisor side to the account side to the attorney side. The more we can collaborate, the more we can get done and share different ideas to speak to different needs of these clients. And so when we go into these accountants and working with them, yeah, we're, our, our goal is to show them how we can bring a better solution to what they're already trying to solve for many of their clients. It may take some time to go through how our transaction works, but we, we'll spend that time. Um, and uh, we've developed a lot of other tools that really simplify that process which I think I, I, I talked to you a little bit about, but the, the audit system that we built, that mm. was really designed for the centers of influence we work with, the accountants, so that it can simplify everything we're talking about, eliminates all the complexity and gets to the heart of what they, I know 90% of their clients already have, which is life insurance, right? You, yeah. you think of... You think of uh, one simple discussion I was having yesterday with uh, a large accounting firm that I, I'm working with is they, we've done, uh, you know, probably over 30 transactions over the last 10 years with their firm and how it started. And, and we were just reminiscing about it was, you know, uh, they said they loved it. They just didn't know how to broach any clients. And, mm-hmm. and, we, and I said, that's where this audit comes in. And we said, how many of your clients are actually you know, let's not worry about premium finance. How many of your clients are actually just paying for life insurance? He didn't know off the top of his head, but we ended up finding out that it, it, it was a large number. And the next question I asked was, okay, how many of those policies do you think are performing the way they were sold? Another question he couldn't answer, but I, when I started showing and some of the statistics, the unfortunate reality is, is a lot of policies aren't performing the way they were sold. And that's for a number of reasons, which is there's a lot of turnover with insurance advisors in, in this space. They're typically sold to individuals by their brother, cousin, neighbors, what have you. <laughs> yep. um, and, it, it, you know, it's, it's the insurance space is hard. It's sales. Mm-hmm. And there's, so there's a lot of turnover. And so the proper reviews of these policies aren't being done. And if, if someone is, uh, you know, not reviewing these permanent life insurance policies on an annual or uh, every two to three years, if interest rates change, these policies can end up eating themselves up. And some of these clients, you know, may have spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of premium and expecting when they were sold to them, these death benefits to be there. If we do an audit, we find out the audit's going to do exactly that. It's just going to go in and do an analysis to make sure these policies are healthy. If this analysis comes back and we have to show the client that, look, not only is this policy not healthy, but it may lapse in two or three years and you've already put in, you know, three or $4 million, that's a that's not a fun conversation to have, but the clients appreciate it because uh, the audit's going to show them what they need to do to in- save that policy or pivot to something else. But as you can see, we're just talking about now life insurance. I can now, I'm speaking to a problem that they have. I can now pivot if they qualify and they have the right net worth and they have a need and we understand what what's going on in this situation. We can pivot to the, the, the financed insurance solution as another option. And 
you know, we, we, we dove into that without having to get into all the complexities that we've kind of gone through today. We, we're, we're speaking yeah. to pain that they're currently feeling. Yeah, really interesting. Well, and I think those are key, super key points for accountants because, you know, we look right. at that in advisory mindset. It's about having the arrows in your quiver and continuing to right. add more arrows to the quiver. You don't have to be an expert in everything and you don't have to understand the technical aspects of it. I know that our goal through Engineered Advisory is to bring in partners who are the best in the business at everything they do and then just right. simply giving our firms the tools to know how to identify opportunities. And I think in this, it's as, as clear as you know, net worth of 10 million or more. And then also, I'd love the audit aspect of you're saying, you know, how many of your clients are currently paying for life insurance? That's a pretty clear metric um, to just look at that from a baseline. Maybe a little bit more in depth to say how many of them are performing as they were sold. And maybe it's worth doing an audit to make sure that there's value mm -hmm. and they're not just throwing their money away. Um, and that's another sort of simple, simple segue for a CPA to have that conversation with their client and broach mm -hmm. the topic. Um, and then finally, of course, I think understanding and identifying that they will likely have a, a large estate tax issue um, and being aware of that. I think one of the most difficult things in, when, when we deal with a CPA or client who is, is, is contacting us about solutions and they say, mm -hmm. I had a conversation with my CPA and I said, what can I do? And the CPA says, well, you know, you just paid the tax. You're doing great. Congratulations. And certainly there's right. a time to do that. But there are so many phenomenal tools available in the tax code that are legal, that are part of these incentives available to taxpayers um, to be able to deploy and implement some of those things and, and um, the value that that can bring to a client. For a CPA to have that conversation with a client, the potential value is astronomical. Um, certainly yeah. builds the relationship um, and uh, yeah. and loyalty that you gain because of the value that comes into play. So I know we have really enjoyed the relationship with you and your firm as well, and certainly trust what you guys are doing. Before we wrap up, because this is the healthy, wealthy, and wise discussion, <laughs> I right. I would be remiss if I didn't say Nick, you are a young, healthy, fit guy. I don't know much about <laughs> what you like to do on the uh, on your off time, um, but I love sharing people's. I don't know if you want to call them tips, tip, tips and tricks, but you know, I am a huge believer that if we just get in the habit of doing something, and if we allow it to become a habit, it becomes our lifestyle. Um, and if we choose healthy habits, it can change everything. So for mm. you. What what have you done or what matters to you from that stance to take care of yourself mentally and physically? Because I think the mental and physical aspect in, in that harmony and balance between work and the stresses of work, we have to look at that in a holistic viewpoint and take care of all of it for us to truly be successful. I really, I'm so passionate about it because I really believe success has to have all of those components. So, so tell me a little bit about, you know, diving into personal Nick, what's personal about Nick that, that is driving you to, to keep that balance. Okay. Now I got to shift into vulnerable side. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think this is, this is such an interesting topic. I mean, you know, mental health is, um, obviously 
the, the light has been shined on that bright mm-hmm. over the last, I don't know, seven, seven years, uh, specifically, especially during COVID, I think mental health really, you know, people are starting to see that that's important, you know, I, and, and mm-hmm. it's funny to me, I, I've, my whole life, you know, I, I've always thought that I've had good mental health. I could speak as though I've done, uh, I, I could speak as though I, you know, you might walk away going, wow, he, he probably, he's, he's probably done. He sounds like he's done therapy or he's read books or, you know, I, I think I painted a good picture, but it's actually what I believed. And it's not mm-hmm. until COVID and meeting my, my spouse that I truly learned what mental health truly was and and what being vulnerable really was um i you know i we've had we've had our ups and downs um I, you know i read a, a, a something this morning you know real love really um goes you know goes through it and uh, uh it doesn't just happen and that spoke loudly to me because that's really what ours is felt like i always thought it needed to be perfect and, and bumps in the road meant you were falling apart. And, um, through all of that, you know, I really jumped into therapy I, over the last, uh, probably four years with my relationship. I, I recognized that, you know, some of the things that I'd been doing my whole life weren't working and I had to really a- analyze why they weren't working and they weren't working because it was one-sided. It was coming just from me and what I wanted. And it was it basically, I, you know, I wanted, uh, I wanted love, but you can't have love without being vulnerable. How can, how can, uh, how can you meet that? Right. Um, how can someone else meet that if you can't show that? And so she real she was really helped me find that side and, and want to uh, find that side, if you will. And I've just learned so much about mental health and it's actually slowed me down in, in a good way within the work that I'm doing. Um, I thought, for example, you know, the, the more I got done throughout the day, uh, it was about items getting done with that just meant the more successful I was. And, and, um, <laughs> since moving to Seattle over the last year, I've really slowed down and it's, that's really hard to say for me because I, I think part of me feels like that means I'm failing in some way, but what's happening is, is I'm less stressed. I'm actually more productive. Uh, I am getting less little items done throughout the day, but I'm happier. Um, and that reflects with the relationships, my clients, the, uh, accountants I work with. I mean, my most, most importantly, myself and my, my, my wife, and it just, um, slowing down, accepting and controlling what I can control and letting go of the rest has been those, those three things have been just life-changing for me. And, you know, I, I couldn't have done it without therapy and, you know, therapy is always a danger, scary word for me to say. Um, (laughs) Well, so, so to that point, I think this is so interesting because I'm identifying a, a, um, a common thread through my podcast that I honestly did not expect. And one of my first podcasts with Philip Wentworth, you know, he's a big, you know, college athlete, you know, big guy from Texas. And I asked him a similar question and his result was, 
I started going to therapy and it's been life-changing. And, and it, uh, it, yeah. I literally, my jaw hit the floor. It was the last thing I expected. First off, because I didn't expect it coming from, you know, this big, healthy, strong guy. Same with you, yeah. Nick. But secondarily, because there is absolutely a perception about therapy and guys don't talk about going to therapy. Like that's such a girl thing to do. <laughs> like, is that the yeah. worst? Is that the worst mindset ever? Um, yeah. But I think it's so incredible. And I, I so appreciate you sharing that because again, I'm finding it's fascinating in my conversations with people on this podcast to find that I'm, I'm finding this common thread thinking, you know, I'm going to hear about all these amazing exercises and things people are doing. And it's actually <laughs> circling back to it being about therapy and it about being trying to find that mental balance of where we need to be in our minds. And then the fact that you've identified that need to kind of slow down and be okay with that. Because yeah. I was also reading an article the other day that was saying that same thing. We have this mentality that we have to be super busy all the time and we have to be running 100 miles an hour to be successful. But in and if reality... You're not in yeah, that is, yeah, you're lazy or you're not productive or you know you're you're whatever, you're failing. And and you mm -hmm. hit the nail on the head with that comment because I totally agree that there is kind of a perception and we've gotten into this mode. And also what you said about COVID throwing us into this all of a sudden shining a spotlight on our mental health and how much we need people in our lives and the connections and I think reevaluating what matters <laughs> and coming back to that sort of mental health balance. And uh, I, I mean, I'm like, I'm inspired by just hearing you share that because I think it's huge. Well, yeah. And you take that logic uh, that we, that we all have programmed into us and going, okay, I, I like to work out. I like to bike. I like to ski. I like to go to the gym. I like to eat healthy food. I like to learn about like my craft. I, so I spend time doing all of that. And by mm -hmm. spending time doing all of that, I get better. <laughs> all I was ever doing with mental health. And I think a lot of people are, is we talk about how our mental health is good, but there's a big difference between talking about how you feel good or that you, you know what the right thing to do. It's another thing to actually do what you do to, when you go to the gym or when you bike, you're exercising your mind. And, and yeah. that I, I never, I, I used to say that to myself. I used to know that, but I now see the big difference between being able to talk uh, 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 or maybe it's, maybe it's reassuring myself that I'm okay. Right. And, and I think I was okay. But the point is, is there's a big difference between being able to say, I'm, I'm working on myself and, and my mental health and actually doing stuff to actually make your mental health better. And, mm. and, you know, doing that on a daily basis is a game changer uh, and something that I've, uh, both me and my, my wife have been doing for the last two years. And that's a, that's a, that's as much of a routine now as eating healthy and you know, working out or anything I do, I'm actually incorporating things that actually make my mental health better. And that only makes me more productive and happier and just who I want to be. You know? Yeah. I, I love that. I, I think you gave me a, a new hashtag. I'm going to start using, um, exercising my mind. Um, I think 
I think that's when we need to start um, start sharing. So, <laughs> well, Nick, this has been amazing. We are kind of at the end of our show. I don't want to keep you too long, but I love the conversation. I'm fascinated by what you do. I think the 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 service that you offer is tremendous. But aside from that, you and your family are incredible. And I know that you were the best in the business in terms of your professionalism and the care that you take and the due diligence. And I so appreciate that, particularly in this space. So thank you so much for joining me on the show. Love having you. I always love the discussion. If you guys liked the show, please subscribe. And if you liked it, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't, send me an email. Give me feedback. <laughs> but uh, but thanks so much for listening. And Nick, again, thank you for joining. Can't wait to see you again. And I hope you have a great afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks.